Well, this week I was reading about uh, TripAdvisor. TripAdvisor offers a lot of different things that people can do, excursions and stuff. And one of the things they offer is this evening camel tour in Morocco. And in their brochure, it looks like it should be something really great, this nice, serene trip that you take through the Moroccan desert, see all the different uh, sites there and everything. They even stop in a little Berber house, and they have some snacks with some some mint tea. And it sounds like something that would be really great and just nice and kind of peaceful and serene. But there was a woman a few years ago in 2019, into 2019, she actually sued TripAdvisor. Because when she went on this trip, she was put on a pregnant camel who broke away from the rest of the tour and threw her off the camel, and she got hurt. And so she sued, and, and apparently she thought that TripAdvisor, on their, on their site, they should probably, instead of just putting some nice peaceful fi- pictures like this one, also put some pictures of some pregnant camels throwing people off and breaking their arms. And uh, as I read that, I was thinking about, you know, that's just like one symptom, isn't it, of, a, of the kind of culture we live in today that people always want to blame someone else for what happens in their lives, right? And unfortunately, even as, as Christians, we can get caught up in that. We can get caught up in even, even blaming other people for the sin in our lives. And, and we see this happen all the time, you know, we... We, uh, we, you've probably seen people that say, well, my spouse doesn't make me happy, so, so I had to file for divorce. Or maybe you hear someone say, well, you know, my finances were, were really tight, so for a little while we just decided we wouldn't give God the first fruits of, uh, of our resources, and we just kind of hang on to those for ourselves, but we're only going to do it for a little while. But, but our financial circumstances, they really require that we have to do that. Or maybe it's uh, you go to work and you say, you know, it's not really my fault that I had those lustful thoughts. If that woman wouldn't dress like that and come to work, then I wouldn't lust after her. Or the one we've seen really recently that's, that's been in the news a lot recently is, well, you know, when I went to college, I just didn't really understand what this debt was that I was getting into, so now I'm not going to go ahead and pay it back. And so we, we have all these different excuses for sin. And what's even worse is that sometimes we even go beyond blaming other people and we begin to blame God for our sin. And I want a lot of you are thinking right now, well, I would never blame God for my sin. But I think I'll show you this morning that we can do that in some subtle ways that we might not even recognize. And that really shouldn't come as a big surprise to us because if we go all the way back to the garden and we look at the very first sin, in the history of mankind, we find out that that's exactly what Adam and Eve do, right? Let's look first at Adam. He, he sins, and here's how he responds. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree of the fruit, and I ate it. Now, at first, it appears like Adam's really blaming the woman. He's blaming Eve, but really, he's blaming God, isn't he? Because what does he say? It's the woman what? The woman you gave me, God. I was nice and happy here all by myself, and then you put this woman into my life, and she messed everything up. So, God, not only is it her fault, it's your fault too. And Eve doesn't do much better. Let's look at Eve's response. God says to her, what have you done? And what does the woman say? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So it sounds like she's blaming the serpent, right? But really what she's saying is, hey, look, God, 
you put me in this garden. You also put the serpent in the garden too. You allowed him to be there. You created him. So really, God, it's your fault that I sinned. And we do the same thing. Like I say, we might not say that out loud, but, but I think there's some subtle ways we do it. Two that come to mind are, are this. First of all, maybe you've even said something like this or you've heard someone else say, well, you know what? That's just the way God made me. I mean, he gave me these desires. He gave me this certain temperament. He, he gave me this propensity to sin in this certain area. So when I sin, it's not really my fault. It's God's fault because that's the way he made me. Or the other way we do it, we saw this last week. We, we talked about how God is sovereign over all our circumstances, even the difficult things that come into our lives. And so if that's true, when something comes into our life, some circumstance like the ones I just mentioned a minute ago that, that kind of lead us into temptation and lead us into sin, we say, well, God, if you hadn't brought those circumstances into my life, I wouldn't have sinned. And so essentially we're still blaming God for that, right? But what we're going to see in the passage that we that we're going to look at this morning is this, that when I yield to temptation, I have no one to blame but myself. When I yield to temptation, I have no one to blame but myself. I can't blame God. I can't blame other people. I can't blame things. I'm responsible for that sin in my life. And we're going to see that this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to James chapter 1. We're going to pick up right where we left off uh, last week. We looked at the first 12 verses last week, and we'll pick up this morning in verse 13, and you can go ahead and uh, just follow along as I read, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now, we, we talked about this last week. The word that's translated tempted in this passage, the very same word that we saw that was translated trials last week in the first part of this chapter. And we said then that you have to look at the context to determine how to translate it. And last week, we saw that that word was primarily applied to external afflictions that come into our lives. And we talked about the fact that God brings those afflictions, He brings those trials into our lives for the purpose of proving that our faith is genuine. And so He wraps up this entire section in verse 12 that we looked at last week, and He says, when you remain steadfast under trials, God blesses you. There's a blessing in that. Because God's using that to prove the genuineness of our faith. But here in verse 13, he kind of turns a little bit, and rather than looking at external affliction, he's now looking at more of this, this internal solicitation to do evil and to sin that comes into our lives. And I think James, he, he ties the two together with this one word because he understands that 
Sometimes these external afflictions that come, if we don't handle them properly in the way that we talked about last week, what happens is they eventually become a temptation for us to sin or to turn to evil. But even if that happens, there's still no one else to blame for our sin because when I yield to temptation, I have no one to blame but myself. I can't blame God. I can't blame somebody else. I can't blame my circumstances. It's really on me. And so there's two things that I want to be able to to do with this passage this morning. The first thing is I want to talk about why it is that God can't be the reason for my temptation, why I can't blame God on my temptation. And that's going to really be the key and the foundation because until we kind of get that idea down, we're going to have a hard time applying the second part of the message this morning, which I hope will be a really practical uh, lesson, uh, some really practical principles on how we can make sure that we triumph over temptation when it comes into our lives. So the first thing we want to talk about is why God can't be the source of my temptation, why I can't blame Him for my temptations, why I can't blame Him for my sin. And we find that answer in verses 16 through 18, really the last part of this passage that we're going to look at this morning. And there's two primary reasons why I can't blame God for my temptations and my sin. The number one reason is because of who He is. I mean, look how it describes God here. What does it say? It says, God, He's the source of good, that He showers good on His people. Matter of fact, it says that those good gifts, they keep coming down. That's a present tense verb. It means day after day, moment after moment, God keeps showering us with blessings, with good things in our life. Why? Because that's who he is. He's a good God. I think it's next week we're going to have Good God Sunday again, and we're going to sing about the goodness of God and how good he is. And that's his character. That's who he is. And so there's no way that he could turn around and then try to bring evil into someone else's life because there's no evil in him. If he were to do that, he'd be acting in a way that's completely different than his character. So the first reason God can't be the source of my temptation is just because of who he is. But a second reason is because of who he has made me to be. Notice here it says that God made us his first fruits. And we see here that he said that that happened out of his will. Sometimes people argue that James and Paul are talking you know, about different things, that there's conflicts between James and Paul when it comes to salvation by works. But even James makes it really clear here. We're only, we only become disciples of Jesus. We only become children of God because that's his will. It's not because of anything I do. And it says that God wants us to be his first fruits. And we've seen that word a lot in the Scriptures. And it, it, it's a subject that's really deep. But, but at a minimum here, what it means is this. When I'm called to be a disciple of Jesus, God wants me to be an ambassador for Jesus. He wants me to go around and tell how Jesus has changed my life. And, and, and that's the first fruits. We want to bring other people into his kingdom to follow in the steps that we've taken. And if, in fact, that's who God has created me to be, God's not going to bring any kind of temptation or sin into my life that might damage my testimony and keep me from being effective as a witness for Jesus Christ, as as his ambassador. So it's just not possible for God to be the source of my temptation, the source of my sin. 
And I hope you've grasped that because until you grasp that idea, you're going to have a hard time with some of the other things that we're going to talk about this morning. So with that in mind, I want to make the, the last part of this message very, very practical. And I want to talk about how it is that I can triumph over the temptations that come into my life. Because we all face temptations. This is a message that's relevant for every single one of us. And the first thing that we have to do is we have to understand the process of sin. You know, sometimes I think we, we think sin is just this, this one-time thing we do, that it's a one-time act. But James makes it really clear here there's a process that takes place before temptation actually turns into sin. We need to recognize temptation itself is not sin. And so it's important that we deal with temptation at the temptation spot before it becomes sin. And one of the things we have to do is to understand the process that James lays out for us here. So here's step one in the process is my desire. That's an act usually of my emotions. So I, I, I see something, I want it, you know, and that's the, the first thing. The word desire here, translated desire, it's a, a word that means like some deep down things that we really want. Some of the English translations translate it lust, which is not necessarily a bad translation. But we tend to think of lust only in terms, a lot of times, of sexual things, and it goes far beyond that. And so it begins with this emotion. And the emotions themselves are, are often not a problem. I mean, we have emotions that God has built into us, right? When I get thirsty, what do I have? I have a desire to drink to satisfy that thirst. When I get hungry, I have a desire to eat to fulfill that. God has given us desires. He's given me a desire to sleep when I get tired because my body needs sleep. He's given us sexual desires. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but he wants to make sure that we fulfill them in a way that brings glory to him. So the emotions themselves are not necessarily bad. The, the desires, it's what we do with them next. And the next step in the process then, step two, is the, is the step of deception. And now we've gone from something that's just an emotion, and now I have to begin to deal with it in, in my mind. I have to think more about it. And, and James talks about that here in a couple of ways. He gives us a couple of illustrations. He says that we're lured and that we're enticed. The word lured there, it's a hunting term. It means like to, to lure an animal into a trap. Like if you were to set up a mouse trap in your home, what do you do? You put a piece of cheese on there to lure that mouse into the trap where it's going to get caught. And, and he's saying that's the way that the temptation works. The word entice, it's a, a fishing term. It's like I talked about with the kids a little bit ago. I love to go out and fish, and I use these lures. And the lures are, are in, they're designed to to deceive the fish into thinking it's something good when it's really not. And then when they, they follow up on that and they take the hook, then it leads to the third step in the process, and that's disobedience. And disobedience is now an act of my will. It's gone from an emotion to something that's in my mind now that I think about, it, and now by an act of my will, I actually give in and I do whatever that sin might be. And James uses another illustration here. He uses the illustration of childbirth. And we all know about childbirth. Once there's a conception that takes place, unless something comes in to intervene in that process, nine months later we have a birth, right? 
And he's saying that sin is like that. Temptation is like that. When, when, when we're deceived, if we don't do something about it at that point, inevitably it's going to lead to us being disobedient to God, to giving in by an act of my will and being disobedient to him. And then finally, step four, he says here, is death. It's death. He says that's the inevitable result of sin. And, and my first inclination here was to think, well, he must be talking about spiritual death, right? Now, sin does lead to spiritual death, but I'm not sure that's what James is getting here. Because remember, who his audience is? He's writing to fellow Christians. He even calls him my dear brothers right here. And I don't think he's in any way, shape, or form saying that somehow once we've, once we've put our faith in Jesus Christ that we can lose our salvation. He's not saying that at all. So it has to be something else. And I think there's two possibilities here. I think he could be talking about physical death. Now, both, both Paul and uh, John, in their writings, they talk about sin that can lead to a physical death. For instance, here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is regards to the Lord's Supper. He says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have what? Died. He's talking about physical death there. Sometimes there are sins that can lead to physical death. Here's how John described that. He writes this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Then he writes this, though. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that anyone should pray for that. Again, I think if you take that in context, he's speaking about physical death there. And I can think of some some sins that would lead to physical death. We could probably all think of some. One that comes to mind is if, if you get drunk. That's a sin. And if you get drunk, what could happen? You could eventually, you could have liver disease and die from that. You might go out and, and get in a car and kill yourself or kill someone else. So there are some sins, I think, that could lead to physical death. But, but, but in my mind, I think James has something else in mind here. He has in mind what I would call operational death. And here's what I mean by that, is that we don't lose our relationship with God, but every time we sing, something, something comes into that relationship, and it, it pushes us a little further away from God, and it hinders that relationship that we have with God. And so no, we can no longer have that intimate fellowship with him until we take care of the sin, which we can do. And we're, we don't really live a life in which we're blessed by obeying God. And so we lose out on some of those blessings in life. And there's a sense in which that's a, a death. Remember, if you were at Billy's memorial service yesterday, we talked about the fact that death is a separation. And I think that's what it's talking about here, that there's a separation between us and God that occurs whenever we sin. So the first thing we have to do, we have to understand this process because once we do that, we can apply these next steps at the appropriate place depending where we are in that process. So the next thing I have to do is I have to let God change my desires. If the first step in the process is is desire, then what I, what I want to do, I want to let God change those desires. I'm going to share with you a verse. You've probably seen this verse like, almost every week, I think, for the last month. It comes from Psalm 37, verse 4. 
that says, delight yourself, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And as we've talked about, the idea there is that when I delight in God, when I spend time in his word, when I pray, when I worship with other people, that God begins to change my desires and align my desires with his. And so that's, that's something we need to do. We need to say, God, would you take and, and change my desires? Would you make them consistent with who you are and what you want for my life? The second thing that we have to do is we have to focus on God's truth. Because we already talked about these desires are going to come into our mind. And that's okay. That's still not sin at that point. Desire is not sin. But the problem comes in when we begin to, we begin to think about how can I satisfy that desire in a way that might not be pleasing to God. So what I have to do at that point is I have to evaluate my desires based on God's Word. Paul gives us some really helpful instruction in his letter, second letter to the church at Corinth. He says this, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And here's the important part. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Here's what he's saying. When a desire comes into my mind, what, I, what do I do? I evaluate it based on the Word of God. I say, God, what does your Word show me? How am I supposed to take care of this desire according to your Word? And so what we do is we, begin, we, we ask God to first change our desires if He needs to do that. The second thing we do, we say, God, would you show me how this desire fits in with your truth? Because now remember where the battle is in the second stage? It's in our mind. And so we need to make sure that, that we evaluate that in our mind. We need to say, God, show me how you want me to do this in a way that would bring glory and honor to you. When we do that, here's what we find, that, that sometimes the desires are okay, but the way we want to we satisfy them is not. Let me just give you one example. Let's say that you have some kind of a sexual desire. And you go to God's Word, and what God's Word is, says is this. The only way that you're supposed to satisfy those desires is within the marriage of one man to one woman for a lifetime. And so what that means is that if you're thinking about doing anything else that's outside of those boundaries, whether it's, it's premarital sex, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's pornography, whether it's adultery, whatever it might be, that those things are outside of God's plan for your life. And so you say, okay, God, I'm going to evaluate what I'm thinking about doing in light of your word, and I'm going to choose to follow what's in your word. The third thing that we need to do is we need to know where the exits are. When you get on a plane, what do they do? They, they tell you, they go through this big, long spiel, and what is one of the last things they tell you? Know where the exits are, right? How many of you guys don't pay any attention to that at all when you fly? Hardly, Right? I mean, I, I know I don't. It's like, yeah, I've heard this a thousand times. Until the one flight I got on where when we got ready to land, they flew around the control tower two or three times, and then they came on and said, well, we're not really sure if our landing gear is down. So when we, when we land the plane, you need to assume the crash position. Now, that day before we landed, I knew where the closest exits were. When we have a temptation to sin, God... God has always provides an exit for us. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, no temptation, no temptation 
has overtaken you that is not common to man. And, and here's the important part. God is faithful, and he will not let you tempt, be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God will always provide an exit for you. Now, some of those exits, some of those exits are real easy to spot. I mean, if you're an alcoholic, there's a pretty easy exit when someone invites you to go to the bar with them. You just don't go to the bar with them. That's your exit, right? If you have other temptations in your life, some of them, some of them if, you're, if you're tempted to, to look at stuff you shouldn't be looking on the computer when you get alone by yourself, one of the exits is to make sure that you don't get on the computer when you're by yourself. That's a pretty obvious exit. But sometimes the exits are not nearly as, as apparent to us. We don't know where that exit is, and that's when I think we just have to pray with all our heart, God, will you show me an exit? Will you show me where the exit is? Because you promised in your word that you provide one. Will you show me where the exit is? And I, I can almost guarantee you that is a prayer that God would love to answer. Because he doesn't want you to give in to sin. He wants you to be able to overcome that temptation. Finally, here's one last thing. You might need to get some help. might need to get some help. You know, sometimes we think we're just going to handle all these temptations on our own, that we can do it by my own willpower. I'm just going to overcome this. And usually what happens when we do that is we fail. And especially when we get to the point of disobedience, and, and when that disobedience becomes a lifestyle, we need some help sometimes. And fortunately, that's one of the reasons that God has put us into this body that we call the church, that the very moment we give our lives to Jesus, we become part of this fellowship where we have people around us who are here to help us get through these things. We don't have to do it on our own. That's why a little bit later on in this same letter, James is going to say, to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. The idea is that, that we're all in this together, that we want to take our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we want to help them through that. But, but sometimes you can't get help unless you ask for it. That's why Ryan and I, every week we say, look, if there's something we can do to help you apply the message, let us know. And to be real honest, we hardly ever hear from anybody. And we are here. We mean that. We genuinely mean that. But we can't help you if we don't know. And this idea of getting help, it's, it's not only just in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament as well. You might be familiar with this passage from Ecclesiastes where it says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can, one keep, how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And then here's the really good part. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know who that third cord has to be? It has to be Jesus. But you know what? You can't make a braid with two cords, can you? If it's just you and Jesus, sometimes you need that third cord. Sometimes you need that other person to come in and help you out. And so don't be afraid to do that. So we've seen this morning that 
that when I yield to temptation, I have no one else to blame but myself. Now, most of you here are probably familiar with desert broom plants, right? Those things are a pain, aren't they? All you have to do is clear off. I swear if you, if you clear off one square inch of dirt, they will grow there. They will find a way to grow there. But the thing is, if you, if you get them when they first pop up, and especially if the ground's wet, you can pull them out fairly easily, right? But what happens if you don't pull them out right away? They get bigger and bigger, and just ask Gene Melzer about how hard they are to get out. He's come over here with his truck and pulled them out and cut them down and poured gasoline on them and everything else, and they just they come back again. And I think that's a pretty good picture of what temptation is like in our lives. If we'll, get a, if we'll take care of it early on at that desire stage, we can pull it out pretty easily. But if we don't do that, if we let it to the deception stage or the disobedience stage, it gets pretty hard to pull out of our lives sometimes. The good news is, though, it's not impossible to do that. And, and, and to be real honest, all of us are going to fail at times, right? We do fail. Sometimes in our lives we allow those sins to get to the point of disobedience. But the good news is we have a loving God who delights in forgiving those sins and restoring our relationship with him if we will just come and allow him to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Father, it's really important, I know, for us to understand how temptation works in our lives because we want to just snip it in the bud as early on as possible. And I want to especially pray right now for anyone who's with us this morning who might be struggling with some sin in their life. I pray this morning that your word might really just penetrate their lives. I pray for all of us at whatever stage we might be in that process of sin that we would apply the principles that we've looked at today to make sure that that sin or that temptation doesn't turn into sin, Father. And for those who have sinned or who are struggling with sin right now. Father, I pray that your grace would be sufficient for them. I pray that they would turn to you. I pray that, that, that their sin and their shame would, would just cause them to turn to you, Father, so that they might find the grace and mercy that you offer. We pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned a moment ago,